Father, we cannot comprehend the sacrifice that your Son made on our behalf. It staggers us. And Lord, so does your love, who you are. We're amazed to be in your presence. We are amazed that your presence is here with us. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We thank you for your spirit that flows through us. And as we worship and as we sing and as we fellowship, may everything that we do bring glory to your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to begin this morning by giving you the lyrics to uh, a song uh, entitled, What Are Words? What are words if you really don't mean them when you say them? What are words if you're there only for good times and then that's all? When it's love, yeah, you say them out loud. Those words, they never go away. They live on even when we're gone. That was a 2011 hit. It was uh, performed by the singer Chris Medina. Actually, the song was released the day after he was uh, cut from American Idol. So, <laughs> But the song is an expression of love to his fiancée who had shortly before suffered in a car accident, a traumatic brain injury that disabled her. The song is about keeping promises. It's about making commitments. It's about honoring your word. And we know words, words to that song and others, words have the power to deepen relationships. Words have the power to tear relationships apart. Words, in fact, are so significant that we cannot live without them. And we know this. We know it intuitively. We, we feel it. Uh, you remember the words that were given to you by someone at some point in your life that encouraged you, perhaps to do what you're doing today, perhaps other things, but nevertheless, someone spoke life into your life, a father, a mother, perhaps a teacher or a coach, uh, a family member, someone through their words changed the trajectory of your life. Rabbi Yehuda Berg wrote these uh, words, words are singularly the most powerful force available to humanity. We can choose to use this force constructively with words of encouragement or destructively with words of despair. Words have energy and power to help, the ability to heal, to hinder, to hurt, to harm, to humiliate, and to humble. And we all know this is true. And so does Satan. Saul Alinsky, in his book, Rules for Radical, wrote this. 
He who controls the language controls the masses. I don't recommend movies and I don't recommend books, but if you, if you want to know what the enemy thinks, it's, it's right here in his book, Rules for Radicals. And let me tell you why I know this to be true. Saul Alinsky writes this. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who's to know where mythology leaves off and history begins and which is which, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that at least he won his own kingdom, Lucifer. That's the dedication. The beginning of George Orwell's 1984, these words are presented as the official motto of the nation of Oceania. War in peace, or war is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. So the ministry of peace oversaw war, the ministry of love carried out torture of political prisoners, and the ministry of truth oversaw new speak. New speak was the way that words were to be employed, and they were deliberately oblique. So oblique means a slanting, that coming in from a direction. It's not perpendicular or parallel. It's Purposefully misleading, purposefully indirect. In the book, it ultimately sums to what is two plus two, and the answer is five. And, of course, that answer is completely oblique. There was a character in his book, I'll call him Smee. Smee from Peter Pan. It's probably Syme, but I like Smee better Anyway, he was a philologist. Now, a philologist is someone who uh, studies the language in oral and written form and how history has developed and brings it up to the modern day. So they know words. and They know how words are used. Now, Smee specialized in new speak. According to Smee, by 2050... Just amazing how close we are to that now. Earlier, probably, all real knowledge of old speak, that is what we speak today, will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll only exist in new speak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory. Even the slogans will change. How can you have a slogan such as freedom is slavery when the very concept of freedom no longer exists. One of the amazing things about Orwell's book, 1984, is that he wrote as a socialist. He wrote it as a warning to socialists. What could happen if you don't manage this thing right? So that warning has now, for many uh, today, it's being taken as a guidebook 
for how to do this. It's an amazing thing. And this message is very personal to me because I love words. And words are, are rich. Words allow us to communicate. And I don't want new speak. I want, if anything, uh, theological speak. Let me tell you something perhaps you haven't thought of consciously. I want to bring it right into your awareness. As a matter of language, mankind has never grunted caveman style. Never happened. We didn't go from making noises to making language. Not if you believe the Bible. To believe the Bible means to believe that God brought all the animals before Adam and Adam named them one by one. Language, the implication is that Adam already had language in his head. It was already present. It was something that was given to him by God. And frankly, the display of intellect is stunning. If you were, I would be ended by aardvark. I couldn't get past the A's. I probably couldn't get past the AA's. I wouldn't get anywhere with this. What it's showing is that Adam was a brilliant, brilliant creation of God. An amazing intellect and with language fully uh, there. And this is where we come to our passage. And, and there's a major division in Paul's letter here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. So what he'd been doing before that was saying, stand firm in the face of persecution. Stand firm in the face of this elimination of truth that we see around us. Stand firm. Now in 2.14, he addresses something different. He's addressing the age-old tactic of the enemy, and that is the use and the abuse, the manipulation, the deliberate making uh, oblique language. I mean, we, we see this revealed in, in Genesis. His tactic, his first tactic was to deceive. How did he deceive? With language. Ah, did the Lord say? He does so by taking a healthy dose of, of truth and then he destroys it with his uh, poison, this inception of his lies. And that's how we're first introduced in this section, how Satan's lies polarize and bring ruin to the local manifestation of the body of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.14 through 19 reads this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which do no, does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, 
who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we see that there's this huge fight that's going on in the church of Ephesus. And what's this fight about? It's over words. They were disputing about uh, words. Church battles breaking out. They were dividing into factions over what the epistle, uh, the apostle literally calls word uh, battles. Maybe more accurately even uh, would be word uh, wars. Now, my entire uh, introduction was predicated, really, on the notion that we need to maintain our language. We need to fight against new speak, which surrounds us. All you got to do is pick up any newspaper and you'll find it. It is more about what's actually going on kind of behind the scenes here, and that we should maintain our language. We should not easily change it, and certainly not when it's at the whim of the authority. Yeah, there are English words and phrases that need to be changed. I have no problem with that. Let the society at large do that, not somebody who thinks that they know better than you or uh, me. Paul, as a master wordsmith, was not saying that we shouldn't go to battle over words like freedom or grace or mercy or compassion, or frankly, even words like sin or hell. He wasn't saying that words were unimportant and shouldn't be fought over. He was talking about something else. And so what does it look like in practice? And so when I offer you a history of a word, an etymology of a word, what I'm trying to do is broaden and deepen what that word means to you. So in effect, I'm battling for that word. But if that's not what Paul is talking about, what is he? So I, a little history here, which is the background, and that is this oratory, the art of public speaking, was highly regarded in ancient Rome. In fact, it was considered by many Romans as the most important of all the arts. And so it was taught in every school. There was no person who went to school who did not know how to deliver oratory. Now, one could argue the way it was taught, you know, in 90 BC, it was only for the purpose of developing good uh, government and an educated populace. But according to the historian Gwen at Oxford, the popular trend of oratory by 35 A.D., so this was well established by the time Paul was talking to Timothy about this, was not rhetoric in the traditional sense at all. It was called silver Latin, a style that favored, quote, ornate embellishment over clarity and precision. In other words, it was an argument about a word or a concept where the word or the concept had lost its meaning. That was no longer the important thing. The important thing was how well the orator 
argued for or against it. It's an amazing uh, thing, a shift in the way that people talk. He goes on to tell us in uh, the uh, book, the Roman Oration, that uh, Aelius uh, praised the accomplishments of Rome such that people were just maddened with, you know, uh, cheers and and so forth. But, quote, his purpose was not to give an account of Roman conquest and governance, but to dazzle the audience with his hyperbolic eloquence. Okay, so now you have to understand this was what was taught in all the schools. Ephesus was a Roman city. Ephesus was deeply into this. I believe this is what Paul is talking about. He, of all people, wants you to know what justification and what faith and what mercy, all of those and so many more mean. And to those words are precious. It's to give you a glimpse into how these new believers were taking the, some of those skills and then they were twisting the truth and this silver Latin was the style of the day. And as Lang observed, it was this. This is the way it was at Paul's time. It was through their dexterity and disputation they endeavored to win for themselves the reputation of deep thinkers and formidable rhetoricians. Understand this. This is what Paul is talking about. The battles were no longer over words. That's not what these battles were over. These battles were over personalities. When you get the sum of a Paul and some of Apollos and uh, some of Christ and all that, that is, in essence, where this leads uh, to. It was over personality and influence, where truth gives way to persuasion. And that is a poor place for us to be. This gives you some of the historical background uh, when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.1, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Don't hear what Paul is not saying. We err if we think that the Apostle Paul was not eloquent. One need look only at his writing and his impact in the community, and you'll see that that's not true. What Paul was saying is, I didn't come to you as an orator, as a rhetorician or whatever that word is. Silver Latin is not coming out of my lips. What's coming out of my lips is bearing the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I am not trying to persuade you with cleverness and uh, false wisdom. I'm telling you the truth. And when Christ is not at the center, when the fundamentals are not at the center, even Christians engage in these word battles that are destructive and extreme. And so Paul tells Timothy uh, to do four things about these word wars. The first thing is, is to remind them uh, these things and to charge them not to quarrel about uh, these things. So he was to remind the brothers and sisters, hey, you know what? You're in uh, Christ. 
we're unified in Christ and we're not to make enemies with one another fighting over these words because when that happened, it, le- it leads to catastrophe. Some of your scripture uh, text may say catastrophe. Um, if uh, Some may say ruin. The word uh, there is uh, better catastrophe. The second uh, suggestion that the apostle makes is, is to how to handle uh, the quarrel. And, and that is to demonstrate a proper handling of the scriptures. So that's where we get this wonderful verse in verse 15, which is on the front of your bulletins. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul is telling us you need to seek God's approval, not the approval of of man. And so on that basis, we see that what God thinks is more important than what the congregation or what anyone that you speak to thinks. That's at a higher, it's not that it's not important, it's just that God's approval is harder. And so Timothy is to work hard at understanding the usage of words found in Scripture. Timothy is to be a a workman, a laborer, somebody who needs not to be ashamed because, why? Because he has done his homework adequately. And he's investigated the whole of the scripture with these words and what they mean and how they fit. And so must we. I mean, any of you who teach the Bible, well, any of you who teach, but the Bible in particular in our context understands that it requires a level of workmanship. You have to look at how the words in the passage relate to one another. Not only that, you have to look at how those words and that text relate to other texts in Scripture, in whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And now, because you're working with languages other than English, when you come up with a particularly, what does this word mean? Now we have many wonderful tools for people with just English and haven't had the time to uh, work on the language. You just look it up. In fact, you've got it at your internet. In fact, but if you've got the blue letter Bible, just hit tap it and it'll give you that information like that. We have access to this, but it still requires a bit of work. And then you need to focus a little bit on the customs and the courtesies of those centuries. So Paul urged Timothy to be a workman who has no need to be ashamed. Okay, why would he be ashamed? He would be ashamed because he didn't put the requisite work in to talk about the words of Scripture. And not only do you put the work in, it's not simply you have to work at doing this. And, you know, I understand from a devotional perspective, it may be that you would read the word of God and, and just simply allow for him to speak to you in some way. And I think that has a role in its place. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about here is rightly handling this word of truth by working diligently at at sorting all of those things that I already mentioned out. In fact, this rightly 
handling is an interesting uh, word itself. It means to cut straight. It means to make a, a straight cut. And uh, people through the years have wondered, okay, well, what does that mean? Some have said that it's the, the way a farmer uh, will, will do a furrow. If you look ahead of you, that thing's going to go all over the place. So what you do is you pick a tree or you pick something off in the distance and you'll, you'll, you'll cut straight. In fact, if you're, ever, if you're ever trying to get somewhere and you're in the, in the woods, a little orienteering trick, pick something that's in the distance that you can see that's tall and go that way. If you, if you try these little short places, you're going you're gonna to end up all, all twisted around. Well, maybe it is that. Or maybe it's a stonemason who builds a wall, and then they, they, they drop the plumb line, and then you cut that exactly straight. I, I don't know. I go to the closest thing that I can get to. What was Paul in his profession? He was a tent maker. Now, a tent maker, there's somebody who knows how to make a cut. And guess who traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey? Timothy. So I, I just, I think the teacher, the father, the, the master of the craft is saying, Timothy, you well know that you have to cut it straight so that you don't have to stretch or it won't bind or any of those other things in order to, to fit. Regardless, it's you do it well, you do it right. I would get razzed every year when we taught at the little home school over in Jordan because if somebody asked me what something meant, what does that mean? I would say, look it up. And so look it up. I, I, every time I turned around, I was telling them to, to look it up. So if I said to any of those students today, look it up, they, they would have a whole history behind that. They would know immediately what I was talking about, and I believe that Timothy did as well. Be sure to cut a straight line. Understand the words as they relate to other scriptures and, and how they deal with the a subject so that you're not bending and twisting in order to make something uh, fit. And, and Paul is dealing with something that's very important here. And that's how we understand Scripture itself. Because all Scripture must be understood in the light of other Scripture. I mean, this is uh, where heresy begins. And this is where error begins, is when we take a single passage or we take a single uh, book, or we take a single word, and we zero in on that, and, uh, and then we build an entire dock around that one uh, thing. That's a sure-fired recipe for being wrong, uh, biblically. Uh, Paul discusses the handling of this in uh, the squabbles and what, what led to those squabbles in verse 16. Avoid such godless chatter for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will eat its way like gangrene. The word for avoid here is, is actually, I mean, it's a good word. It, what it means is to walk around it. Just don't even go there. Don't get involved. Don't join uh, the clamor. Do not let yourself down into those kind of uh, battles because if you get involved, the problem will escalate. It, it's only going to lead to more and more ungodliness, as Paul says. And uh, the, that term here that he uses is translated 
godless chatter, which might be in some of your translation, is literally empty babblings. It's just going on and on about nothing. And further, it's going to eat like gangrene. Having worked in the hospital, I don't mean to bring up images for those of you who have experienced uh, some of this, but gangrene is no joke. It says, uh, further, it will eat like gangrene. Gangrene is an infection of the, the bloodstream. It spreads rapidly through uh, the body. Uh, my uh, dear friend actually died from gas gangrene, something that hadn't been seen very much of since World War I. In World War I, over 100,000 soldiers died from this who would have ordinarily survived their wounds if they had just were able to get them cleaned in time. Uh, of the 2,700 cases that the U.S. military had in World War I, uh, 1,400 of them uh, died. This, was, this is a, a very serious condition. And I, I think what you need to see that as it spreads through the, the body, uh, it emits a foul stench, festering wounds that keep growing and is difficult to handle, and that's how God sees this. That's how God sees this, like gangrene in the church. It smells bad. It spreads quickly. And if not stopped in time, the entire body or the entire congregation can be infected by it. And Paul points out an example right there. Boom. Verse 17. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, we met Hymenaeus back in 1 Timothy. And that's when, several years earlier, when Paul delivered him unto Satan in order that he may learn not to blaspheme. Well, so much for that, at least in this time and space continuum when he was writing. So in teaching what he was doing, without going into all the details, he was accommodating the Greek philosophy about the material being evil, and uh, bad, and he was taking a partial truth uh, revelation of Scripture and talking about the resurrection was a spiritual event. It's already happened. Don't think that you're going to be bodily resurrected. It's not going to happen. And that was upsetting the faith of a lot of people. And then the, uh, Paul admonished uh, them to remember this. And I, I love this, and, and so should we in verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words, don't panic, Timothy. God's got this. Yes, there may be this in your midst, but the Lord is larger than this. You have to protect, but God's foundation is uh, firm. So as we, as we are moving to the conclusion here first, okay, so Paul urged them, remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. Stop quarreling. They will know who we are by our love. Second, labor for accurateness uh, in understanding the scripture. Third, avoid complicity with heresy. Just don't even go there. 
And then finally, don't panic. God's still in control. And this is how, this is how he wants us to handle this. In this past uh, week, uh, it came to light that a uh, diversity and inclusion training at the Air Force Academy, there's any number of problems. I was stationed at the academy for several years. Uh, I love the academy, but this is concerning, and it's not what I talked about in Sunday school. It's something that I think is almost worse, and that is no longer, this was the training, drop the terms boyfriend and girlfriend. Okay, what's the next bullet? Drop the terms mom and dad. Now, you've gone too far. No. That's... That's just wrong. And and is that old speak? I don't care. Mom and dad, since Adam and Eve have come to this day, and I'm not going to call my uh, dad, who I never met, by the way, who I have no memories of other than one 15-minute encounter on our honeymoon where as soon as he found out I wasn't a bill collector, he cut off the conversation and went back to work. I'm still not going to call him parent. (laughs) Hey, parent, my my parent. I just, you know what? Like I said before, many words in the English language uh, can use some adjusting. Some can use dropping altogether. I get all all of that, but the government's not the entity to do it to tell me uh, how to speak or not to speak. And the people who dream up these things either entirely fail to understand or they do understand, which is worse, and they do not care that by including some, they exclude many. Just say, add this. If you're speaking to a group, say, just add some other words. You don't have to exclude mom and dad. You just add some other words. You add some other phrases. And I'm okay with that. I got no problem with that. Now, while that may not rise to the level of newspeak in 1984, make no mistake, it is on that spectrum. Once we've accustomed ourselves to language changes like this, which today is almost on a daily basis, We're susceptible to even more changes without complaint. And this is also true of those who handle Scripture. We cannot be loose. We cannot redefine hell. We must not redefine sin. We must maintain these words from their origins And it's not a matter of softening the word itself. It's a matter of presenting these things in a manner that is graceful. Author uh, Gore Vidal, who is deceased now, wrote in Imperial America. uh, This is in the 90s. As societies grow decadent, the language grows decadent too. Words are used to disguise, not to illuminate action. 
You liberate a city by destroying it. Words are used to confuse so that at election time, people will solemnly vote against their own interests. Let this never be said in, of, of, of the church. And I'm not talking about voting. What I'm talking about is if we get caught up in this whiplash in this disoriented, and we can't even use the word orient anymore if you keep up with the news, if we have no compass point to point to, you will spin out in any and many directions, some at the same time. We have to have the truth of the word of God and the words of God holding us steady. Let it never be said of the church. We must not allow the words of Scripture to fall prey to the enemy in the believer's minds. So to end as I began, what are words if you don't mean them when you say them? What are words if they're only for good times? Then that's all. When it's love, yeah, you say them out loud. Those words, they never go away. They live on even when we're gone. God wrote a love letter to us not simply because we had an injury, even a tragic, traumatic brain injury, but while we were dead in our sins, he spoke life to us, that he will never leave or forsake us the dungeon filled with light, and we are set free. His word and words to us must never change. Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, the giver of life, the giver of eulogy, good word. And we so dearly appreciate that you have given us a standard, something that we can point to and say, even though the, the world go another way, yet I will follow the Lord. And while, at least here in this country, that distinction may not be very clear, we must not make the mistake that it is a dividing line. It is very distinct. Give us the heart to know it and see it when it comes. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.